welcome to the Philia podcast. Philia means daughter. We are the daughters of the women who came before us and we fight so that our daughters may be free. We are a women-led volunteer organization. Our vision is a world free from patriarchy where all women and girls are liberated. We seek to contribute to the women's liberation movement by building sisterhood and solidarity among women locally, nationally, and globally. By amplifying the voices of women, particularly those less often heard or purposefully silenced, and by defending women's human rights. Our podcast seeks to shed light on some of the most pressing issues facing women and girls around the world. Please take from them what you can. In sisterhood and in solidarity, the Philia team. Hey, welcome everybody. It's lovely that you're here. Um, welcome to the Philia Legacy Project, the book club. We are very honoured to be speaking with Eswa today. Um, and hopefully you'll have all read her wonderful book, The Space Between Black and White. Um, I'm Lisa Marie. I'm one of the volunteers with Philia. We're a women's rights organisation. And I am just going to introduce Eswa now before we start. Welcome everybody. So Eswa is a black mixed race author campaigner and facilitator. She was born in the 1950s in South London to a white, working class, disabled single mother. She has a string of firsts to her name, so make yourself comfortable. First chair of the Fawcett Society, co-founder of the Gender and Development Network, first representative of women's organizations on the government delegation to the United Nations Conference in Beijing in 1995, she was the first black president of Leicester University Student Union and was awarded an honorary doctorate by the university in 2015 in recognition of her work in international women's, women's human rights. Leicester University unveiled a special portrait of Eswa to celebrate International Women's Day and the centenary of the women's vote in 2018. In 1995, Eswa founded the Anuna Development Consultancy to work in the not-for-profit sector as a facilitator, trainer and strategist. She's worked with over 100 organizations all over the world, and she's now a director for the Healing Solidarity Feminist Collective and active in the Black Lives Matter movement. Welcome, Eswa. Thank you. When we first connected, we had what I would call an immediate bond, and I was trying to remember where we first met so I could share it with the listeners. And I realized, you know what, we haven't actually met yet. But I have such a close connection with you. And, yes, and I am really looking forward to finally meeting in real life when everything settles yes. down. And I have to say, hand on heart, I mean, your book is is quite extraordinary. I think it's it's beautifully written. And, and I found I wanted to rush through it to find out what happened next. But I also wanted to take my time and savour the beautiful words that you've written. And it, it is absolutely a gift to the world. And I want to thank you deeply for writing it. So I want to start by asking what finally led you to decide to put pen to paper in what is a visceral, open and raw book? And could you share something of the emotions in doing so? All right, thank you. Well, thank you for that wonderful introduction, Lisa Marie. I honestly feel as if I have known you for years. I have not known you. It's amazing how we've got used to 
um forming relationships you know on, online and we can we can do it and it's not the same as the real thing but i think feminism and sisterhood works uh, across the ether and it's great to uh, to be connected to all my sisters all over the world and in some ways i suppose you know i've connected with a, a lot more people through through lockdown so uh, thank you for reading my book and for and I'm so thrilled that you actually enjoyed it. And thank you to all the people who've come tonight and, you know, hoping they've enjoyed it too. Um, and I think it's one of these things. I actually wrote it in this shed, which is at the bottom of my garden. It, you, it, it is my office for my consultancy, but uh, I sort of turned it into my writing room. And um, I, I guess I wrote I wrote for years and I wrote in diaries and in journals and um, uh, in, in in articles and so on. So I kind of wrote a lot and it, I suddenly felt this urge, I don't know, about four years ago now, I suppose, to really finish it. I just felt that the mixed race identity was so important and there was so much coming up about it. It was much more in the news. And what's more, when I was a kid, I was like an only one. There were very few people who are mixed race. And, um, you know, now there's several million mixed race well, say, say several million, there's millions all over the world. But in this country, uh, I don't think they know how many, but certainly there's a couple of million. And uh, there are a lot of them very young children. And I wanted to do this for kind of our generation to say we got a history and we're the real deal. So, yeah, how was it to um, actually write it? Well, I think if you are writing a memoir, it's quite uh, difficult because you're you're talking about your own family. It, it's not just your story; it's everyone else's story, and they've all got a, a different version of it that they think is the official one. You see, so there's a that didn't happen to you. That can't have happened to you. You know, so you sort of gaslight lighted all the time. So it was quite um, it was quite a, a challenge. And also, I've lived a long life, and so it's a bit of a thick book. And what to leave out as well? I mean, some people were upset because they were in it and they didn't want to be in it. Some people were upset because they got left out of it. But what I did was uh, I went, um, I, I used not just my diaries, but, you know, some of the art outfits that I describe in the book. I've still got them. I never throw anything away. So my teenage outfits, I've got some of them. And also, so it's all archives. So you can... Um, you don't just do it from memory and once you turn that tap on I was dreaming about people I'd forgotten all sorts of things so it was an emotional roller coaster of a journey and I had to lay myself bare but unless you are prepared to tell yourself the truth you don't know the meaning of your life and once I'd written it down it somehow got a life of its own and now I've been invited to talk about it. I I see connections that I just didn't realise. When you just live your life, you sort of you go on, uh, and it's sort of like a whole load of disjointed events. But when you actually look at the patterns, it's an incredibly exciting privilege. But it's tough. It really is tough too. It's an extraordinarily rich book, actually. Lynn says, "So good to be here. Looking forward to hearing you, S1C, after reading yeah. your story." I'm Lynn. <laughs> so what has it been like to have your book published during lockdown and being one of the 20 in 2020 black writers published by Jacaranda, which I have to say is the only publishing house with an all black women's staff and leadership? Yeah. 
Oh, well, I was so lucky. Honestly, I got turned down by um, some of the big, you know, white publishers uh, who didn't understand the book, said, write it all in the past tense from the point of view of your mother. That'll really sell. You know, you think, what? <laughs> so uh, actually, um, I was really lucky that I came at the right time for Jacaranda. And I think Jacaranda um, rightly recognised that there's only like something like under one percent of all books in this country are written by black authors or feature a black um, character which is just minuscule and all the time the white um publishers are saying oh well if black people could write we'd publish it there just aren't any you know so they said yes there are and they did a nationwide um uh, competition and uh, i went in for it to find uh 20 black writers to publish in 2020 great idea difficult year to do it you what did we think this time last year we were all excited you know our books are going to be published we were going to hit the stage and you know and it's just been really difficult but at the same time um i mean i was one of the first to be published actually uh in february and we could sort of see there might be a lockdown, but it was in Italy and, you know, who knew? And so it was just enough time for all my books to go into the books, uh, book uh, shops and get locked down. So for a while, none were sold at all until the online sales started coming on. And uh, then I got lots of invitations to come and talk to lovely people like you. And, you know, uh, sometimes be, I'm talking to people all over the world, you know, sort of right in the chat line, you know, it's really early morning in Kazakhstan. So it's really nice to see you. Yeah. <laughs> you just, so it's been really exciting that somehow I speak to hundreds of people every day and I'm in this little shed and I come out and think, what? It's, you know, the opposite of the TARDIS. Well, it maybe it is the TARDIS. You come in and there's this whole big world and it's a multiverse. And I wonder, I don't think I would have got that if I'd been, you know, face to face. I just couldn't physically have done it. So in some ways, it's been a roller coaster. It's been exciting. And all my best topics that I've been campaigning on all my life, anti-racism, feminism, anti-poverty, equality, all those things are still right at the top of the, um, you know, of the political agenda. So in some ways, this was the time to write this book. So it sort of came together in a strange and wonderful way. It's been hell on earth for a lot of people, but I feel, you know, that I feel a sense that the message was right and it was getting out here at the right time. Thank you. I was at the launch of your book and absolutely there were people from all over the world. Yeah. It was a phenomenal event to be in, actually. Tamara said, very excited to be here and listen. Welcome, Tamara. Yay. Next question. And that 1% figure, that less than 1% figure you just quoted yeah. is absolutely appalling. I mean, something really, yeah, that needs to change. Mm. So your book tells us that this sense of justice um, started, it's very clear throughout the book, but started at a very young age. Can you mm. share with us a little bit about how you began to make sense of this world that you felt yourself found yourself in as the only black child in your neighborhood on a working class estate in the 1950s when racial tensions were really high in Britain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think, uh, yeah, I felt like an, an only one. And I think onlyness 
absolutely sums it up. It's a word that's, you know, I wasn't familiar with at the time and uh, haven't been until very recently. And I think it really sums up for me how I felt that wherever I went, I had a sense of kind of mistaken identity and feeling that, you know, racial ambiguity and people not knowing where I came from, constantly being asked to explain myself, my origins, where I came from. But I think right from when I was a, a kid, and funny enough, you know, I was very much darker in skin tone as a child. If you look at those pictures of me in my memoir, and basically there was no one to compare with me with. So, you know, I was as black as they come, you know, and everybody was kind of uh, uh, using racist names and uh, I was taunted a lot at school. So I really felt like an outcast. So I wanted to show in my... Um, book that although I came from a really loving and uh, family um, there was still some uh, ambiguous you know ambivalence towards race in my family my grandmother was very anti-black and uh, my grandfather um, was very much an egalitarian so I had very mixed messages literally about my identity growing up but I can just remember that sense of um injustice that I'd walk out my front door and people would just uh, hit me with a tolerant, you know, a torrent of abuse. And everyone just said, oh, ignore it. They're just having fun. They're, you know, just uh, don't, don't say anything and you just make it worse. It was like either you, either I was ignored, like um, invisible or else I was highly, highly visible. So people didn't mention my colour or else I got this racial abuse. So I think I felt right from a small kid, this isn't right. And I just, you know, it was from the time I met that little girl, Kumba, on the common. I just thought, you know, I, there are people like me out there and it's not right that we're treated like this. And uh, I, I think that's what drives me even now. They say that your formative years, you know, in four or five are really what shapes you as a person. And I just think that was a very, very distinct um a uh, set of experiences for me which will never go away and has really driven me into feeling that sense of other otherness and um uh you know just erasure and negation uh, that people suffer who are like me and uh, i wanted to i wanted it to end i, did, I, I even as a child i just felt it wasn't right and that really it really comes through in the book and you mentioned the pictures and I remember starting to read the book and I thought oh my gosh I wish I could see her I wish I could see her and then suddenly the pictures were there yeah. and they're absolutely glorious. So <laughs> Uta, welcome. Uta says, such an interesting book and an interesting life. But I think she hasn't had one life. I think she's fitted 10 into one life by the sound. <laughs> so we are limited for time and, and I have to say I could listen to you for hours and hours and hours um, but we are going to probably have to skip over your school days a bit too quickly. But I do want to mention that it is here that you begin to receive these messages. And I think they're really important and informative, actually. Teachers start telling you that you are really smart. And this is important to you and um, that, you, that you hear this. And, and you organize your first protest, which is about socks. <laughs> You've got the wrong pairs of socks and you want these pairs of socks. And you're identified as the ringleader and you don't win that particular battle. But I think the scene is definitely set for your future political activism and it's a big question I really wasn't sure how to ask it but I do want to ask how your life experiences informed not only your sense of injustice in the world that you've just talked about but your attitude which is one of understanding and empathy 
and you see all this connectedness and then and then you say right what are we going to do about it and then what you do is you lead the way um, and, and what happened when you agreed to put yourself forward for the position of president of the university? Yeah. Well, it's funny because you make it sound great. I wish I lived that life. <laughs> but actually, uh, I was considered to be a little bit stupid and borderline. I wasn't considered to be smart, smart at all. Um, in my family, um, I think I had a working class family who... Uh, who rated academic achievement. And my mother was very clever. She was good at exams. She passed her exams and um, she was really good at absorbing facts and so on. And so I was always considered to be borderline. That's what they called me, a little bit flaky and hysterical. No. This is what they said, you know, this is the impression that people gave me as a child. You know what I mean? That, uh, that basically the kind of, uh, the kind of smartness that I had was not fashionable in the 1960s. It was naughty. It was uh, a bit out of control. And you, you don't talk back to teachers. Don't forget, this is a very different world. People, you know, if you talk back to teachers and start saying you are interested in politics, age 13, you're, you know, you're uppity and you, you, you've got to do your schoolwork and, and get on with it. So I really had the feeling that I wasn't very good at school and um, that I really struggled with exams, that I was in, I was not interested in anything they wanted to teach me. I felt you know negated and uh i i was doing stuff like writing books and things ha, who knew um at, at 13 when uh, all the others were kind of uh sitting there you know reading poetry <laughs> which is what you're supposed to do so yeah i got what i felt i was was a rebel which was not considered to be a good thing and especially not for someone my color and my gender because you know I've got enough problems, so I should, that's what my auntie says, you know, you've got enough problems, don't rock the boat, you know, just be grateful that you've been taken in, you know, and don't upset your mother. So that was the, that was the kind of um, zeitgeist, I suppose, at the time. Um, so I never felt that I was uh, good at school or um, well, or I could perform uh, well. I thought I was never going to get to university because I wasn't really good enough um and i think when i got to university i did exactly the same thing i thought oh forget about the classes i mean i i quite enjoyed my degree because it was a little bit of everything um it it was called combined arts and it meant that i could pick a different course from every uh one of my courses in the universe or every department right so that was great for politics because it meant that i knew everybody i knew all the students from the politics department, the history department, the social sciences, the American studies. So for me, it was my, <laughs> this was really sort of adding to my political reach. That's why I liked it. Um, and I think um, I was really shocked about being president. I always felt I got up every day and think and thought, I really can't hack this. I don't know how I got here. And I don't, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know anyone else around me who looks like me. I'm making it up as I go along. And I really felt 
it was a struggle. I never felt a sense of achievement. I always felt a sense of what am I doing here? And sometimes someone's going to find me out. And of course they did every day. All the white boys, especially the posh white boys from the public school, they were constantly saying to me, you're no good at this. What are you doing here? You know, uh, so I think it, it's sort of, um, it's a, it, I think it's only afterwards that you can see in your life, well, you know, at least I did something there. Uh, but at the time, there's a lot of people who want to undermine you. And I think there's a lot of people listening to this who are thinking, women thinking, yeah, you know, you do get undermined a lot as a, as a woman, uh, particularly as a black woman and as a mixed race woman. All the time, you have to be 10 times as good. Well, you have to work 10 times as hard to be thought half as good. I think that's what Obama says, isn't it? So uh, all, all of these things, you know, look on, looking back on it, it looks good. But at the time, I was thinking, what am I doing? You know, am I up to this? <laughs> so it's quite and that funny. Word, apathy that you use. Yeah, absolutely. Word that is applied to women so yeah. frequently. Yeah. So I was laughing when I got to be president and they all came to me and said, you better be it because you're the only one that can beat the fascists. And I thought, oh, well, there you see. <laughs> I'm good for something. <laughs> it's a brilliant, brilliant story. And there's um, tell us a bit about um, there's a moment in the university when you see a woman being treated quite badly in the hall, yeah. um, sexist abuse, and how do you respond to that? Because I think it's quite brilliant, actually. Yeah. Well, I just thought uh, I'm not I'm not letting them get away with this. We paid our students union dues, same as everybody else. So I just decided I was going to propose an emergency motion. And um, they used to be quite well attended, the student meetings at that time. You'd get a few hundred each time, but there was like 800 or more, like the whole hall was packed. And I think it was because um, I wrote, this house is against sexism. That was the motion, right? Nobody had heard of sexism at the time. It was a new word from America. So they saw the th first three letters and thought, this will be good. You know, so lots of people came who had never been to a student union meeting before. And the rugby club was there and it was all a bit, a lot of show, you know. But honestly, the, the, um, the, the motion got passed and it's still, I went to uh, Leicester to do the research for this book and I, I looked, they keep all the minutes and I was looking in there and there's me writing that speech. That is the real speech that I gave. I just, you know, it was there in the minutes. And at the end it said, you know, standing ovation and uh, what the, all the heckling that went on. So it was it's very live that. So I think that's why people enjoy that bit because uh, I was able to get to the source material for it. Absolutely. And it's still there. The same yeah. policy is still there against sexism to this very day fantastic i went to leicester university i went to leicester too and i love the idea oh. that i was in the hall where this happened yeah. and that the policy passed <laughs> probably had an impact on my life going through university oh. and other women as well so well done and and you came off the stage and they said right now we want you to do that for black students as well so no pressure so you were very much seen as the heart of politics in the university yeah. which is fantastic yeah, yeah. So, uh, move on now sorry Mixed race identity is the main theme throughout your book. Could you share a little bit about what must have been a huge mass of contradictory feelings in your life about your sense of identity um, at university, but also throughout? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that is what the book is about, really. I wanted to write about what it felt like um, to have a mixed race identity and to go through as a child seeing the injustice, uh, being thought of as black, 
going through as um, an adolescent and being involved in the Black Power movement and uh, rediscovering my sense of self and my hair and, you know, just sort of feeling a sense of black pride in that. And then going on to university where I was involved in the anti-apartheid movement, it was very much part of my identity all the way through this theme of, of race and racial equality and injustice. But at the same time, in relation to my own identity, uh, that, you know, people were saying, oh, you know, what are you? A little bit black, not enough white, or what, you know, whatever it is, they just couldn't place me. So every day you're sort of having to get up um, and uh, prove yourself as a black person, as a woman, and as a mixed race person as well. So for monoracial people, you know, even in the black community, there's this kind of, well, what are you? Whose side are you on? So, that, uh, so um, I think um, I'd try and navigate my way through that. And I wanted to show in all these dis different settings that you're saying, you know, I, I traveled all over the world. I was in Italy and Finland and uh, India and Africa and just, uh, seeing how other people saw me was really, really interesting. And the different things, the different races and ethnicities that I've been mistaken for, you know, all, all the way through that. So it gives you a sense of who who the hell am I? You know, what what is my identity actually? And the only way I could explain my identity in a way that made any sense was to reference my father, who I'd never met and was unlikely to meet. And so I think this this was the thing that really broke me in a sense. And um, being brought up in an all white family, you know, people were always saying, well, are you their auntie? And where are you coming from? Are you the au pair? And when I was out with my nan, they you know, even recently they would say, uh, oh, are you her carer? So all the time you're sort of, you don't look like you belong to that family. And so you, you know, that really drove me to want to explain for a start, the book and um, what that meant to my identity. And at one stage, obviously, I have it really had a really damaging effect on my uh, mental health. And I end up doing <laughs> I've been in therapy all my life trying to work this out, I tell you. And uh, I think, you know, it, it's uh, it, it, it sort of it gets you to a point where you feel like there's nothing inside that people question it so much and you try to be so many different people in so many different situations and you go into a room every day, even now, and you don't know how people are going to read you, whether they will notice at all. If they do, what box they're going to put you in? Are you one of them, one of us, one of the, you know, so it, so it's constantly this, this shifting identity. And at the end of the book, I show how that shifts literally from minute to minute and you get used to it, but it's bloody wearing, you know, it's exhausting sometimes. And it, it got me to the point where I felt unless I can find my dad, I'm not going to resolve this. And, um, one of the things that I found is that all the a lot of the therapists that I work with had no idea about race. Even some of the black ones didn't have any understanding of race, its trauma and its um, integral part in sort of therapeutic healing. So one of the things I wanted to do was show how schools have got to change, 
um, therapy's got to decolonize, universities have got to put it on the curriculum. You know, if we're talking about, you know, development and aid and all of that, that's got to change. We've got to, you know, completely restructure all our institutions because of that. So it was not just inside, but I felt dismantled inside. And I felt the world needs dismantling as well. But <laughs> so we, you know, do that healing together. So I guess that's all part of my campaigning. It's right inside of me, not just out there in the world. That's a wonderfully comprehensive answer. Thank you so much, Eswa. So another of the themes in your book, one that's dear to my heart too, is how important feminism and connections with women are. Yeah. So could you tell us briefly about the some of the women in your book? Um, and one thing also that I've learned about since joining the women's liberation movement myself is that, um, and that, that's included numerous times in your book actually, is consciousness raising. So some women on here might not know what consciousness raising is. But why do you think it's so important to keep CR, consciousness raising, to keep this tradition from the women's liberation movement alive? Big question. Well, I love it. I can't tell you. I'm in seventh heaven with people talking about liberation and consciousness raising and things that went right out of fashion in the Thatcher era. You know, the 80s and 90s, stop talking that old fashioned language, you know, and uh, <laughs> it just doesn't go down well here. And don't mention the F word, feminism, because that's no good either. And now people are realizing how much this philosophy of ours, I think it is a philosophy is so important, uh, integral to us being human beings and women and being alive and out in the world. And I think consciousness raising is better than therapy, honestly. I think that consciousness raising is all about, as a group of women, getting together and learning how to open yourself and get deep into yourself, learning how to share and learning how the sisterhood works. And I think uh, that my chapter 10, when they're, uh, when we're all in the hospital and we're all very different women, some not feminist at all, and that sort of real experience you have of healing when you are with a group of women who are all in the, have a shared experience and are prepared to talk to each other. And I think that there's always this thing, oh, women won't get on, they have a cat fight, and all this crap that you get around um, sort of trying to undermine our sense of sisterhood when actually I think we are good at it, very good at it, and given the right context, um, it can be an absolute lifesaver, an absolute lifesaver, and it's saved my life many, many times. So one of the, book, one of the things I talk about is the women's movement how important it is to me and all my characters are different types of women's um of, of connection between women with my stepmom my dad's wife my mother who was a real big role model to me even though there were senses in which you know we couldn't connect because of our racial identity being so different um, but also um romantic love between my friends my deep you know dearest friends who were um you know, and and also that whole thing of you know being at university and my warden, my uh, of my hall, and uh, her having been a feminist in the twenties, and you know, there's so many connections. The African women that I met along the way, and how important they were, and how important Efwa was to me in actually finding my father. So there are all sorts of. Uh, 
of women's relationships and feminist relationships through the book and I explore female connection in, in I hope, um, as much depth as I can. But I also think the book is actually um, an example of consciousness raising at its deepest, that my whole book is about raising my own consciousness through telling my own story to myself and I hope uh, thereby raising other people's consciousness within the mixed race movement. And we've now got a mixed race movement as well, but also in the wider movement of feminism, anti-racism um, and uh, women who want to be uh, allies to black people and the wider movement. A lot of men have told me how much they loved it gay men as well, how much they love the book. So uh, I think that's uh, that exploring human frailty, vulnerability and relationships at that level, I hope is what consciousness raising is all about. And I highly recommend it to everybody. Um, it's been life changing for, for myself and many other women as well. So we, we, got, we are gonna move to questions in a bit, but I've just got a couple more to fit in, if I may. So you know very little about your dad growing up just what your mother has shared. And she, it's important to remember, she also didn't have any role models, did she? And, and clearly this, this lack of your father had a big effect on your mental health and sense of self, which I think you portray really well in the book. And would you share those steps from Efwa, who you just mentioned from her phone call to you, to that moment where you finally meet the missing part of you and what your first words to him are? And then the important part you played in your life after. Yeah, I think it's interesting that my therapist said you've got to bury this man, put you know, put him in a hole, and we we'll say goodbye to him because you're never going to meet him. So forget it. And I think that was just probably the worst thing anybody ever said to me. But on the other hand, sometimes the worst thing that anybody ever said to you leads you on a path of redemption and you know knowledge. So you know, if he hadn't said that to me, maybe I would never have done it. So who knows? You know, I'm a great one for doing the opposite of what people tell me, <laughs> and arguing with people who are paid to advise me as well. That's very good. That's what I do. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, I think um, again, yes, my uh, sister Efwa, who actually was um, one of the champions um, uh, of the F FGM movement, Efwa Dorkenu, uh, who sadly died before I had a chance to ask her exactly how she found my father. So this is a rather deeply um, traumatic uh, discussion for me in that I lost her before well, the world lost her, really, because she was a pioneer in the anti-FGM movement in the 1970s when people had hardly heard of it, you know. So it was, you know, as, as places. So, um, yeah, but um, my impression is that she was able to meet an old friend who uh, knew of my father. And um, uh, the rest is history, as they say. And I think... Um, it's one of those things where nowadays you've got Davina McCall who comes in and says, yes, here you are, brothers and sisters. You know, you can get together after all these years apart and so on. You, you've got therapists preparing the way and all that. Well, I mean, in my day, you just went on a plane and just hoped for the best. There was no internet, no phones, nothing. So I just rock up at my dad's and say, hey, you know, remember me? And he says, oh, yeah, I knew your mother. <laughs> It's just surreal, absolutely surreal. And then you sit down on a, have a beer and say, well, let's catch up, shall we? You know? And at the same time, you're thinking, 
this is not really happening. This is just a whole made-up story, and you, I couldn't believe it at the time. And um, I got a description of it saying, well, you know, this is happening right now, but it's also my history, it's, you know, and it's like it, it's, it's a dream. And so you get those moments in your life when you think, you, it's going in slow motion. You can see yourself as if you're in a film. You're sort of there, but you're sort of watching it as well, thinking, is this really happening? And I think that's how I felt when I met him. And uh, then, you know, there was a whole, I think one of the things is that um, some people who meet their long lost relatives say, well, there doesn't seem to be a spark to me. But I absolutely fell in love with my dad. I went following him around saying, Dad, do you have to go to work? You know, I was 37 and I was acting like a two-year-old, you know, Daddy, don't leave me. And it's just like, <laughs> I describe it as like a fast-forward uh, home movie <laughs> because that's how it felt to me that I was, you know, rapidly catching up emotionally with this relationship with my father and so and it, it, i i just loved him from the second that i saw him and the same with my brother and my uh, and my stepmom who is not um a, a, a blood relation um but somehow her part in it is just like extraordinary um and then meeting i got 31 first cousins <laughs> meeting my Tina, it's making me cry actually. Sorry, um, me to my uh first cousin Tina, it was like a mirror. And when I talk about mirrors and how I didn't recognize myself, then suddenly there's all these brown people who look like me, you know. If you haven't been there, it's difficult to describe it, you know, but you know, that was uh amazing and um i'm still in touch with them all now and i had a great relationship with my dad until he died and then um i still go there now and i still help out in the village and uh as you know they made me queen mother and um that meant an enormous amount to me because i see my dad being the chief and <laughs> taking himself dead seriously in his robes and there i'm sitting there on the same stool thinking what am i doing here <laughs> and it's just it's mad it's mad really but um at the same time yeah it really um it made me what i am and um it was a really important step in my story but not the whole journey it just makes you realize i saw a whole load of black people who also didn't look like me like the white people didn't because I'm mixed race and I'm still the only one so it was a while before you know it okay you, you put you, you know you see the other half of the story and that was important but there was more to go than that as you know mm. at the Thank end of the so much and we're we're getting on with time but when we've got a few questions coming through so i've got another one if i may and you said to me that you feel optimistic about the future yeah. and the impact that the black lives matter movement is having do you want yeah. to share more, more on this yeah I'm, okay i am an optimist anyway and uh i just sort of think um yeah there's part of me that sort of um felt only this sense of onlyness but there's another part of me that's saying I'm not gonna let it get me down I'm gonna find some way of validating myself and also of fighting for people who've been othered who've been marginalized at the same time and 
being in solidarity with them and as i say being having this book in lockdown has been an extraordinary journey in the summer i was up doing socially distanced rallies on the on tooting common you know comparing all these local uh, black artists and uh, singers and dancers and taking the knee for george floyd and breonna taylor and it was so exciting and like a thousand people used to rock up on a sunday afternoon all wearing masks you know socially distanced to say yeah we are in solidarity and it just reminded me of being a student again and just like you know that sense of activism and that elation you get in being with people and that's what leadership is is being with people and so that you empower everybody and feel empowered by everyone else as well that's what leadership is to me so i feel yes very positive i know it's really scary out there the disease is out there and it's come back um but at the same time thinking you know there's been a flowering and upsurge of kindness in the world as well as well as right-wing fascism which you know god we've i've been fighting against that all my life what's new but at the same time people are actually sharing and they're coming out into the street looking after the older people asking if they want any shopping done the restaurants have been giving away free food you know everybody is feeling you know making way for each other in the street and i just feel a sense of like we will have a better world because of this that there's a confluence of covid environmental disaster um black lives matter feminism and the you know the particular impact of women uh, on women of the of, of the of the disease but i also think um that there's been a lot of women's leadership i mean women were the ones that set up black lives matter the best performing countries in the world and the COVID are led by women. I just feel we have got a lot to offer the world. Feminism still has everything to offer the world and we've got to keep going. Now, Angela Davis said, uh, you've got to get up every morning as if and think that change is absolutely possible. Total change is absolutely possible and you've got to do that every day, believe. Now, I, if I had you for a few more hours, which I would love to do, I'd get you to talk about Angela Davies and the meeting in Hackney and what have you. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to move on to some of the questions that are coming through, actually, because I really want to make sure that we sure. we go through some of those. So, Eswa, can you explain the significance of the renaming with your African name from a cultural and personal yeah. perspective? Um yeah, well, this thing about naming is very interesting because um, ever since I was four, a meeting Kumba on the common, I wanted an African name. And I used to pretend my name was Kumba sometimes. Um, and I often got given nicknames like Buzzer and Goldie and things uh, and uh, because of my personality. And... Uh, I also used to rock up to different situations like being an au pair in Italy and people say, oh, you know, are you sure you're the au pair? You know, so uh, they say, are you sure you come from the UK? Yeah, do you know where I come from? Um, or do I know where I come from? Now that's an interesting point. Um, uh, but yeah, it's just like total confusion that my name didn't match my face. Um, so to me, 
the significance, the personal significance of getting a name that I felt I could, be, that belonged to me was great. And um, I, my full name is Eswanswa. Eruefwa Eswanswa the first is my stool name. Well, you can't really go around calling yourself that. So my sister, my daughter said, no one can pronounce that, mum. Why don't you call yourself Eswa for short? So that seems to have ca caught on. So it's it's kind of even then I've started making up my own name again, haven't I? Um, so so that that's what I call myself, you know, uh, among my friends of whom, yes, oh, they're all around me now. Um, so I think that that was the thing to have a name that I felt was me. And also what was great was having the name of a warrior queen. I mean, you know, what luck, you know, to sort of turn up in Africa and your dad, dad says, by the way, your great, great grandmother was a warrior queen. Yes. Uh, amazing. So I tell her story at the end of it. And what was great is she was half fancy, half um, Ashanti and her whole thing was she was mixed <laughs> and she sort of managed to save the tribe by saying you know I'm half you so you go away and I'm half them so I'm sticking with them you know <laughs> so it was just like such an amazing story you know to 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 feel was part of my history and um I talk to her when things get tough. <laughs> what would S once I do? <laughs> so yeah, the name suits you very, very well. Thank you. I mean, the perfect name for you. I found her as well as my dad. Yes. Found her. Yes, thank you. So we've got some questions, Uta. Um, what would your message be, says Uta, to a young mixed race person growing up in Britain today? Good question. I think, I, yeah, it's a very good question. Thank you. I would say we're the real deal. Don't let people negate you and say you're not one thing and you're not the other. And um, your your identity is not a significance. Pick a side. All the things they used to say to me. It seems to me that um, being mixed race is full of challenges, but you get really good at going into a room, reading a room, reading how people are, reading their, you know, having that sort of sensitivity. Um, so, which is why I end up as a, as a facilitator, because that's what I do. You know, I read rooms all the time uh, and people pay me. Um, and also, I think it takes you into places that other monoracial people can't reach. Like, you know, I'm sometimes going into a room full of all white people, sometimes all black people, sometimes all people of colour and sometimes mixed race people. I mean, all, all sorts of different networks. Everyone says they live in a bubble. We live in a multiverse. We can be everywhere. So there's a huge joy of um, the mixed race identity and and having access to so many different spaces and cultures. So it's very exciting. I think we've got a lot to offer and contribute to the world and the world has to respect us for being a genuine community um with a genuine identity that we shall and can be proud of thank you so so much so here's a question um is it from tomorrow i think um you talk about feeling like a fraud and this is very similar tomorrow to what my, my last question was going to be as well do you still feel like this and my question was i want to ask if you've made peace with yourself ah uh, yeah yes i do <laughs> um 
Yeah, it's funny. I um, I've just recently become because I this is my first book, right? And I it's a bit like being president of the union. I'm thinking, what am I doing here? And you know, I'll never get this published. And when I got so many rejections, I thought, well, there you go. I'm not really good enough. I went to all these courses to learn how to write because I didn't think my writing was any good. Then I argued with the tutor and said, I want to write like I want to write. So, so uh, you know, I sort of really tied myself up in knots with the kind of I go into situations because I don't think I'm good enough, and then I argue with everybody um, as to why. <laughs> why I should be here and um so yeah I do feel uh, a fraud in some ways and I tell you the other day I went to this um uh, black writers guild meeting which was like over a hundred black writers in the room in this zoom room um and we've set ourselves up to challenge this you know white writers um uh, get white, white publishers and you know we want more of our books published and blimey there was um Bernardina Varisto in the room and Benjamin Zephaniah and Afwa Hirsch, all these really famous people saying, oh, come on in. I have never seen them except on a platform. And there they are being participants in this meeting. How do we go? And I'm thinking, blimey, I'm with the big boys and girls now. And I'm thinking, they're going to say, what are you doing? <laughs> You've only written one book and it's never won a Booker Prize. Off you go. And so part of me is still thinking, uh i'm in the wrong place <laughs> but in a way that makes you be better than you you know you that means you've got to be your best self isn't you know i make a big effort <laughs> to be good uh because i just feel that uh that's what is expected um in order to let me stay if i'm good um so yeah i do and then sometimes i think because of being mixed race and because of what i've experienced I know more than everybody about this. You know what I mean? You sort of two characters in your head, one that's a fraud and the other one that's saying, do you know what? I can kick ass if I need to. So, yeah, they're both talking to me. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. So, and I'm sure they were delighted and honoured to have you in the meeting, frankly. Oh, well, maybe if they know. So. <laughs> we have another one. I think this one is also from Tamara. Have you ever considered moving to Ghana? I haven't quite got to the end of the book. Sorry. Um, and also, can you speak a bit about conversations you may have had with your children about their racial identity? I'm at chapter 20 and Jake is eight and realizing there are no brown superheroes right okay yeah so um yes I have considered moving to Ghana especially now when it's cold outside and there's COVID because Africa has come out of COVID pretty well apart from South Africa and I'm in constant touch with my um, Ghanaian family who tell me what's going on there um COVID hasn't gone away completely but there's much less of it than there is here and my son is out there with his girlfriend um for until May so they're, you know, they are enjoying themselves out there with all the family um, and, uh, you know, they're going to be there for Christmas and uh, my stepmom's birthday. She's 88 now. So, yeah, we, I very much feel that that's my second home or probably joint first home now. Um, and I think ideally I'd like to spend some of my time in the UK and some of my time over there, you know, sort of. Uh, live in both places that would be absolutely fantastic and yeah I do talk to my children and you know what? I've never talked to them more than I have this year because for the first half of the year we were all locked down together my daughter is a medic she's just um coming up to her finals in medicine 
this year, which is a hell of a year to be qualifying in medicine. And uh, my son is a, um, a digital um, engine, you know, what do you call it? Digital marketing? I don't know. Um, something like that. Anyway, um, the two of them became very politicized this year. And uh, because of um, because of COVID and uh, black people dying, um, and because of um, uh, Black Lives Matter, and uh, I think because my daughter is now in Derbyshire and in a country area, whereas I brought them up in Tooting, so they never really. I mean, they had mixed race friends, black friends, white friends. They lived in a multicultural environment. So my daughter, for the first time, saw people were staring at her, and you know, feeling that the first time she got actual racial abuse in the street because it's a very white area and she said mum you didn't prepare us for any of this and it's just that is typical of being a mother isn't it you you try and solve the problems that you had but you create a whole load of other ones for your kids so that's yeah uh in a way we we've had some in lockdown we've had some fantastic um conversations about it and they've been up the uh common with me and tooting you know protesting and for the first time ever i went to a march um in around the uh american embassy and took the knee for george floyd and all of that with my two children that was a very proud moment for me standing shoulder to shoulder with them is it a, um, a glorious photograph when you are made queen mother um and you've got your whole family around you and and that's that's just a beautiful beautiful moment so there's a question here Oh, we've got two more and we've got nine minutes. So, oh, we're going to have, okay. So what I'm going to do, Esther, is I'm going to ask you one of these. Um, I think we'll have time for the last one. But what I might do is send it to you so that maybe you can write the answer and I can forward it on to, to the woman who's asked it. So tell us about the role of Queen Mother. What are your responsibilities? All oh, right, okay. <laughs> well, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's a real amazing history of queens in uh, Africa. And um, they uh, were, some of them are sort of warrior queens. They led their people into battle against the colonialists. Um, they're, they're kingmakers. They decide who's going to be the chief. And if the chief is misbehaving, um, you go to the queen mothers and they, you know, de-stool him. Sounds painful, but it's, you know, it's a thing. <laughs> um, and um, they, so they are immensely powerful um, and they ride in their palanquins and uh, they are responsible for the welfare of the women and children in every village. And you get a hierarchy of queens and chiefs um, uh, in the different areas. So, uh, uh, so they're very powerful. And some of them are um, uh, queens of uh, different um, commodities like yam, cassava, tomato queen or whatever. They employ men uh to uh do the farming and they were in that back in the day immensely rich this i'm talking about the 70s and 80s so uh various politicians um uh colonial and um indigenous have tried to smash the queens you can tell can't you too many women going around acting like they are powerful no 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 no. so uh, oh, colonialists actually um uh, uh actually rounded them up and uh, deported them or killed them in and uh, would only speak to the chiefs because they wanted not just colonialism but patriarchy of course so they weren't interested in the chiefs in the queens being powerful 
So uh, uh, I think the uh, the role of the queens has always been incredibly powerful. And if you go back to the 19th century, my gosh, you can see all these queens. They're all it's all rifles over their shoulders. I mean, they were seriously, seriously go going into battle. Um, so it's fantastic. And uh, at one point, I actually went into um, to to find a meeting. I was working in Ghana, and I couldn't find the meeting room. It's a big place in the theatre or something I open this door there's all these queen mothers sitting there all with their regalia on and their crowns and everything I said and I said oh excuse me and uh, because I wasn't a queen mother at the time I went outside I said to the doorman what's going on in there and he said oh it's the queen mother's trade union they're uh, they've all come from the villages they're sorting out you know how to do development and so on so there's an amazing amount of women's power in ghana and all over africa which they did their best to smash but they haven't actually succeeded but at the same time like any other role there's a whole load of protocol there's a lot of vested interests and you know there's another whole side of it which i'm saying i can't be doing with so i sort of march in there now my dad's gone i could do what i like so i go in there and say no no, no I, I don't want to do it like that and all this tradition well never mind tradition you know this is the way i want to do it so uh, i'm kind of uh you know working with the uh the the radicals in the movement in the, of the queen mothers and the wonderful thing is news just in my um ochiami uh, who is called what did i call her in the book i can't remember anyway she's the one who organizes my ceremony for me she's just been made a chief the first chief ever who is female in the whole of our fancy tradition. Is that a coincidence that me and her have been working together? Oh. <laughs> so we're an all women team now. Got a, got a female chief. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Esra, I'm going to try and fit one, one, one more in. It has to be a really brief answer. So Lucky has said, losing your grandfather must have been very difficult for you. Oh, yeah. That one, because he was he he was very politically aware and astute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you want to speak to that? Yeah, um, Ash, yeah, my granddad, yeah, because we bigged up all the women, but there are some very important men in, in my life as well. My granddad was one. He taught me socialism, egalitarianism, anti-racism, um, and he was a, a really important figure to me. And he told me about John Archer, who um, uh, is the first uh, mixed race mayor of London, black mixed race mayor of London, of uh, Battersea. And uh, in the 19... 1913 he was elected nobody talks about him nobody talked about him at school and they're going to raise a um a statue to him somewhere in Battersea next year and they Wandsworth Arts came to me uh, a couple of days ago and said will you write an article about how your grandfather talked about John Archer because you know you're one of the only people we can find who actually had a connection with him who knew who's granddad knew him so i was able to talk about my granddad and john archer and also my own experience as being a mixed race person who you know uh, had some leadership positions so i think that whole sort of triangle of me granddad and and john archer was very exciting to explore so this book is taking me to places that i wouldn't have been to otherwise and rediscovering my history and reinterpreting it in a new light so it's very exciting and I can only say I'm sure granddad would have been 
thrilled with uh, being in the book and uh, yeah, and uh, being such a big part of my life. Mm-hmm. He was my first dad, you know, the person I called dad. So uh, uh, that was that was a very good beginning from somebody who was politically um, uh, active, but also had a very big heart. Thank you so much. Lucky says, I really loved how you both used to read together at lunchtime. So we're going to draw this to a close. I am going to say to everybody that this book is available on Audible. So actually, I mean, we wanted to fit in some readings, but we've just had so many questions. (laughs) So get the Audible copy. And Eswa is reading it all the way through with accents as well that she had to well, tell them about learning about the accents, Eswa. Oh my gosh, yes. I rushed into my hairdressers because I, like, I went into the Audible and said, well, where's the cast? I've got 21 accents. It's not PC, politically correct, to go ta- <laughs> taking people off and taking their accents off. And they said, you'll have to do it. And I said, no way. And they said, well, just do a a hint of an accent. Believe me, a hint of an accent is even more difficult to do than a bad one. So I went into my my uh, hairdresser and I said, look, you've got to teach me Jamaican, how to speak Jamaican patois uh, while you're doing my hair. <laughs> so she, she was really good. We were practicing all the parts and yeah, it was great. So really, uh, it, well, you just don't know you've got it in you until you try, do you? So the only one I couldn't do was the Dutch one, which is really crazy out of anyone I could not do the Dutch one so in the end I rang up my publishers and said look I want to change one sentence from said Lars in his thick Dutch accent to said Lars in his near perfect English and then I said, I didn't have to do the accent <laughs> so I got round it it's all about being a fraud <laughs> fantastic so everybody you have to get hold of the audible yeah, do it it's really fun it was fun I loved it I want to be an actress now <laughs> And I have no doubt you will succeed in anything and everything you put your mind to, Esther. I'll try. I'm a bit of a fraud, but, you know. <laughs> not, not in the slightest. And so the last minute, I just want to say thank you. And in the book, you say, I wish I could hold a room full of people's attention with something to say that's really important, something that will stay with them, make them think and change the way they look at things. And I want to say sincerely, Esther, you, you've definitely succeeded in doing that. And I think we would all like to say a huge thank you for your book and and for sharing with us this evening. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for inviting me. I've had such a wonderful time. I'm going to sit and look at all your chat because I haven't been able to, I've been been looking at Lisa Marie, so I can't see the chat. But I I just wanted to thank you for coming and uh, the privilege of having your book read by such wonderful people and being asked such fantastic questions. I can't tell you how much it means to me. Thank you so much for inviting me and for coming along tonight. Lots of love. Take care. Lots of love to all of you. Thank you. Sisterhood is powerful. Sisterhood and solidarity. Yep. Thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. We are incredibly grateful to all the women who donate their time and their efforts to create this podcast. That includes our guest our interviewers, and our editors. You can find us on your favorite listening platforms like Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Just search for Philia Podcast. Please help us reach even more women. You can do that by subscribing to our show, by sharing this podcast with your friends, with your family, and with your coworkers, or by leaving us a positive rating and review. Philia organizes the largest annual grassroots feminist conference in the UK. 
We would love to see you there. You can support our work by joining the Friends of Philia scheme, by giving a solidarity ticket so that even more women can join our conference, and by subscribing to our newsletter. Please take a look around our website, philia.org.uk, to find out more. Together, women make magic happen, and we can't wait to be in touch with you.